Welcome to Inside the Founder Studio with the California Technology Council, where we bring you perspectives directly from startup founders and investors in every episode. Now we turn to our host in our Northern California headquarters, Matt Gardner, founder of the California Technology Council. Welcome to a new series of Inside the Founder Studio. We have a great new episode for you today with Pallav Sharda, author of Before Disrupting Healthcare, What Innovators Need to Know. We also want to take a moment to thank Scott Horwath for the beautiful new jazz soundtrack. We'll get to our conversation with Pallav Sharda in just a second, but first, here's a word from our sponsors at Nixon Peabody. Nixon Peabody LLP. We see 21st century law as a tool to help shape our clients' futures. For more information, please visit www.nixonpeabody.com. Hi, this is Kylie Lee, Head of Relationship Management at the California Technology Council. Are you looking for training in cybersecurity? Want to know more about web design or development? Our talent initiative is designed for you. Learn more about our training partners and available courses and programs at californiatechnology.org slash talent. Take a moment to subscribe to our podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And be sure to check out our upcoming events at californiatechnology.org slash events. Now let's turn to our conversation with Pallav Sharda about his book, Before Disrupting Healthcare, what innovators need to know. Well, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity, Matt. Happy to be here. So can we start just at the highest level? Tell us why you chose to write this book and uh, what problems you thought you'd try and address with it. Uh, sure. Uh, you know, my life has been uh, in the enterprise health IT world for the longest time, 13 years. And uh, I left that world about three and a half, four years ago, to uh, get my hands dirty and uh, be in the entrepreneurship world. And uh, in that journey, I met several people who were not from healthcare, but extremely talented uh, technologists or innovators who were uh, perennially interested in, in knowing more about healthcare and coming up with ideas about how to make uh, either the clinician or the patient's life better. And every time I, I spoke with them, I, I always ended up sort of giving them little notes on what I had seen behind, uh, behind, the, behind the curtain. And uh, some of those answers kind of found their way on Quora or some late night sort of writing sessions that I had on my blog. And it dawned on me uh, about a couple of years ago that, hey, it's looking like people want to know the answers to this, to similar things, and maybe this uh, begs to be consolidated in, in some way. Now, I didn't really start by, with the idea of writing a book, but uh, I do write uh, almost every day or at least twice a week and for my own sort of edification, actually. Uh, but uh, I, I, I bought a software for $30 and uh, started compiling, and one fine day when I hit that compile button, it turned out to be 200 pages, and I was like, well, this qualifies for a book. Now there are, yeah, this is, um, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say there are a lot of enormous issues that you've uh, jumped into in the book, so uh, I guess let's start at the top. Uh, one of the things that you address right at the front is that 
um, motivated entrepreneurs from the technology industry and, and other industries and, and uh, general investors have, over the last couple of years, uh, moved back into health. And, and I think one of the things that's interesting about this space is that if you survive long enough in it, you see this happening in cycles. Uh, lots of us would remember Google trying its own version of a portable a personal health right. record that they gave up on and, and, you know, came back a few years later with very different versions of an entree into uh, health. So um, is there something that jumps out to you that's different about this cycle where a number of people have come jumping in, ranging from, you know, Peter Thiel to lots of this most recent generation of, of billionaires that have decided that the healthcare industry is so messed up that it deserves more attention. <laughs> uh, excellent question. I, you know, I don't claim to be, um, to have seen the cycle of uh, the, the tech bubble, uh, but I certainly was a part of it vicariously. My, my family was, uh, was here, part, part of my family and living through it. I do think it's not uh, sort of a revelation to say things go in cycle, but I am fundamentally so amazed at the fact that we might have the sort of the perfect alignment of a number of things in this sort of quasi decade of 2015 to 2025, where amazing things may just start happening. And um, let me explain why I think so. I think fundamentally mobile and cloud have given the infrastructure and machine learning have given the infrastructure for disrupting whatever industry you, you think of. Um, it's time to kind of rethink everything. And it's, it's happening in, in like entertainment, music. How quickly have we gone from like CDs to MP3s to streaming? Like even MP3s and, and iPods are, are history now. Um, I think healthcare is, is gathering attention because a lot of the success that has happened in the audio or, or media industry has created the infrastructure that is ready for being arbitraged into healthcare. Uh, now, that alone has never sort of penetrated the armor that healthcare has, uh, just technological advances, uh, as we all know. But this time around, I think another critical element in healthcare is regulatory change which has happened right at the same time that a lot of um, highly skilled and ambitious entrepreneurs like are getting off of the technology, con they conquered some part of technology, uh, like, uh, you know, during the dot-com or in the early mobile phase, and they're looking for the next challenge. And right around that time, Obamacare and the ACO transformation has happened. I'd say 2010 was when it all started happening. Uh, the iPhone kind of came out um, and, and started getting entrenched. Uh, regulatory changes started becoming real. I think everybody was discounting Obamacare for a couple of years, saying, well, it's going to get repealed. We don't know where it's going. But I think personally I felt like at the end of 2010, starting 2011, I was pretty sure that the market has shifted, whether the regulation stays the same way or not. And a lot of uh, technology um, leaders had done their first big hit 
elsewhere and we're looking for other challenges and you know health touches everybody's life i can give you a number of examples where uh like the core leadership team of paypal somebody had a health experience and they decided to change that aspect for everyone um i know the cto uh, max levchin uh, he was i think he was the ex cto of paypal uh, he had a personal experience with uh, with his uh, family tr- trying to get pregnant or or it is something around fertility and next thing you know max has started a company uh called glow and it has 50 million users and so so on and on i mean personal experiences enabled leaders regulatory change and just the perfect uh capabilities of technology have all sort of arrived in this 2010 to 2015 uh period and i feel like all the pieces of the puzzle are in place in the next 10 years 2015 to 2025 is extremely exciting. Let's talk about some of the technical challenges. One of the things that the uh that the Obama administration I think set up for success was that uh actually it may have come before that, but I think it was the stimulus act that actually set up the mandates for conversion of every health system to electronic health records, was it not? Is that where right, it started? Right. Yeah. So Yeah, so well, uh there's a, an enormous yeah, I mean, problem there though, Paul, in the, in the sense that there's a garbage in garbage out issue that is system wide. Can you talk about the the kind of overall shift in health records and and uh uh how that sets us up to either fail or succeed in this kind of transition. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I I do differ I mean, I'd like to qualify the ARA Act, the Recovery and Reinvestment Act impact on healthcare. I think it it got the ball rolling with the High Tech Act and and sort of it was the forced adoption of EHRs that started with uh with that particular regulatory change um I don't think that alone would have qualified as a transformative um point because when government incentivizes uh by giving just money grants the the money ends up in vendors sort of bank accounts and not really uh it's not a guarantee of true adoption it it's a guarantee of uh of products being in the market but whether they get adopted or not is uh is still an open question i think the true turning point for healthcare um is when caregivers and patients get the incentive to change how they're uh experiencing health delivery or health uh the 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 reception of those health delivery services and what i mean is obamacare actually gave the financial incentives for providers to become more like payers so they were now interested in keeping patients at home and not really seeing them uh, in a transactional visit um so that was i think the the fundamental change that we needed from regulations and at the same time employer based uh insurance and a trend started and the high deductible plans had reached a sort of a peak where consumers now actually treat i don't know about how 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 your insurance is structured but certainly what the insurance i have has a very high deductible 
So my first five ten thousand dollars are my own money. So I, I remember you know, I, I run a lot and I injured my ankle and I was trying to get an X-ray for uh, my right foot and I remember shopping around for it and you know you'd think I would know how to do that uh, after being in the industry. I had no clue because prior to that. Um, point in time, I had never shopped around for anything in health services. I always had an insurance that just paid whoever I chose. So I think um, that's like the fundamental um, change in the market where the service uh, recipient and service delivery person have, have both changed their incentives fundamentally. So can you go on a little further about the uh, I, what I think is the kind of garbage in, garbage out challenge of how we're going to use health record data, because you are a little prospective in the book about uh, what the opportunities might be. So garbage in, garbage out. Uh, that's a that's a good sort of uh, perspective argument to make when there's a lot of data coming in and you don't know which one will will derive the right insight. I think the fundamental decision-making still happens with the formal electronic medical record that uh, a clinician uh, is, is authoring uh, during a formal visit. Uh, we are starting to collect a lot of data from patients' home. I don't think any of that has started making its way uh, in the decision cycle for for our clinicians. I am actually um, more optimistic than, uh, than most about the, the value of uh, data gathered outside the clinical visit because I think there, there is enough technological advances to help with the garbage in, garbage out problem. Uh, if you look at uh, general sort of uh, web, uh, web development, like you know, you can throw a bunch of pictures at the Google Photo app, and it can still tell you which ones have a cat in it or which ones have a particular person's face in it. I think technology pattern recognition is getting sophisticated faster uh, every day. So we don't really need to worry too much about how high quality the data is. I think we need to worry more about can we get all the required data? And that's what uh, you know, I was mentioning is the problem is interoperability. If we can get all the pieces of the puzzle from the patient's home, from, um, from the clinical visit, or from uh, a vacation that, that the patient took and saw some other provider, if all those sort of pieces of data are easy to bring together and given to a, a machine, to interpret patterns in, I think we wouldn't have a problem garbage in, garbage out, because machine learning is uh, it, it's going to be effective enough to weed sort of the, the noise out and give us a, a true insight. Did you come up with any insights here about the doctor behavior and practice management? Do you think that it's something that requires a generational change, or are we almost there now? Yeah, actually, that's, that is one of the revelations that, uh, that I had personally in, in the last three, four years. Um, as a part of uh, 
leaving the job and, and getting into entrepreneurship, I did a, a few consulting assignments here and there. And one of them was to interview some of the uh, high-ranking clinical and executive uh, leadership at some of the biggest health systems, you know, Duke, uh, Geisinger. And these were one-on-one -on -one interviews with uh, CMIOs and CIOs. And what struck me was everybody feels in that level. So these are clinical leaders, not just um, administrative people. Everybody knows that there's a, the patterns of delivering care are changing, and they're changing as we speak. So it's not like something that they're expecting to happen in the next 10 years. The biggest health systems are actually the typical um, pattern I found was the biggest health system is going to the largest employer in the area and saying, well, we can create a plan for your employees and we'll take care of whatever health needs they have, um, here's a contract. And that to me starts um, a, a sort of like a chain of uh, predictions in which if that's what the biggest health system is doing in a geographical area, all those smaller players are eventually going to coalesce with the bigger system. So market consolidation is bound to happen. It's funny, one of the, one of the people I interviewed, I think it was a Florida executive in, in Florida, who said, well, we're looking at the world as being um, a couple of Kaisers in every state in, a, in about 10 years. So um, if you fast forward 10 or 20 years, they feel like the, uh, our country is going to have about 100 to 150 large health systems which are plans and, um, in, in themselves. So Kaiserization of uh, the health industry is, is coming, and a lot of it has already happened in markets that can sustain it. Um, of course, uh, some of the Northeast and um, markets are, is, is so fragmented that uh, it, it's hard to perceive that over there. But I do believe that we're in a, in a rapid sort of transformation where the big are going to get bigger and they're going to start taking on more risks in terms of delivering care. And that excites me not just because it's a, it's a process and an organizational change, it's a fundamental technology change because as they get bigger and they take more risk with patients, um, these systems need to know if the patient's doing okay and if, uh, if they're, or if they're going downhill so they can intervene before something happens. Um, that technology is, is, it needs to be built. Uh, you know, it needs to have a mobile, as needs to have a machine learning cloud component to it so that you know exactly when a, dia a dialysis patient should have their dialysis rather than them having an acute episode and having an emergency dialysis. Um, I think that technology doesn't exist today. Um, it needs to be created, and that's just unlimited sort of blue ocean uh, for startups to sail into. One of the things that you've done here is, is go into some detail about health information exchanges. And rather than ask you to repeat what we've just kind of discussed in a conversation about health records, let me fast forward toward the end of that chapter, Love, because really one of the most exciting things that you've 
opened up here is really a description of what you might call the app layer or the analytics layer, and you've you've discussed that here and and kind of created a uh, a little bit of a forecast, if you could call it that. I think. That's, yeah. So so yeah. you just talked about that a little bit. Can you talk more about you know how that's going to plug in and what the opportunity might yeah. be for entrepreneurs? Because I think that you know we're talking about CIOs. They're going to have or they're going to be generating uh, heaps and heaps of data, and we're going to need a, a, a whole generation of entrepreneurs to come in and make that data useful. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you really uh, have surfaced my absolute favorite part of the book, where I feel like uh, we see this in, in technology industry almost so often that we don't even think about it. Like, Google knows where, you're, uh, where you've been, the location data from Google Maps, is available as an API, obviously with the right consent and everything. But all the big technology companies, Google, uh, Apple, Microsoft, they, are, they have a beautiful API layer that lets other external developers leverage their platform insights and then do something even more fantastic with it. So that same thing is actually uh, being set up in healthcare. Now, I wouldn't go as far as saying that the big players in healthcare uh, today, whether they're HIE vendors or EHR vendors, have explicitly created beautiful API layers. But uh, it is happening in sort of an um, invisible way, where uh, there are companies that are created. So ZocDoc is a great example. It's my favorite example. Um, they've raised a, a lot of money, have, have wonderful backers, uh, Jeff Bezos, Vinod Kosla. And they basically are an open table for uh, outpatient scheduling. Now, I don't know if you've used it, but I have actually used ZocDoc a lot. You know, th there have been times where you need to see um, a pediatrician or, or, or somebody, and usually if you call them, uh, the appointment is weeks away. And with ZocDoc, you open it up, and it's literally like booking um, an appointment on your Gmail calendar. You, of course, you don't have the the exact physician available, but you can see a board-certified physician in the specialty that she wants, and you can book an appointment right there. I think scheduling is probably one service, uh, an API that's quite mature in healthcare now, especially outpatient scheduling. So APIs like that, so box.com can become a storage API. And as I started looking at the development in startups and new companies from that perspective, I saw several such service layer attempts. And what that started um, telling me was the EHRs and HIE enterprise software plat uh, vendors today are actually a platform on which new companies and new services are, are being built. So, I don't think there's going to be a company that displaces Epic or Cerner um, in the future, but there's going to be thousands of companies that use Epic and Cerner infrastructure to build a, a, a successful offering on top. Um, there's several examples that I give in the book, um, uh, terminology services. So, you know, healthcare has all these convoluted ontologies and dictionaries about uh, drug names and their uh, ingredients. Uh, things like that are already, uh, there are two companies that do terminology translation services. Um, if, if you were to create a new health uh, app today, uh, Matt, 
and and your prospective user is putting in acetaminophen um, as as a drug type to convert it to a brand name or um, or something else, you now have an API available that can just give you the the right information or when you pass in the right parameter. So things like that are are the building blocks of uh, future innovation and. They're happening in two or three places, like scheduling, storage, terminology, um, but they're happening more and more. And, and that gets me excited because a new startup doesn't have to figure out how do you translate this drug type into another drug type. Um, that service is already available. How do you get a physician schedule? Um, they don't need to figure out because that service is already available. So um, I, I feel very optimistic looking at that uh, trend. So one of the other intersecting trends, Love, that I want to ask you about is, is kind of towards the end of the book, you, you look at uh, other fields of technology starting to merge into health applications. And so we've obviously been really interested in how consumer tech companies would decide to make moves. Um, and and so the itch, issues around Fitbit are, are interesting. They're, Maybe just representing a, a speed bump there, but I think in the in the shorter term, you uh, you have Apple in the in the last few quarters deciding to change its mind about for a long time avoiding entering into regulated health spaces, and now deciding that the watch is indeed going to give it opportunities to do more. Uh, what do you think about the consumer technology companies moving in uh, with both feet now and? Uh, is this going to create more opportunities to integrate onto common platforms, or is it we're going to end up with proprietary systems and you know more kind of fractionalization? Uh, which way is this going to go? Yeah, if you if you think of a spectrum and and imagine the traditional medical device manufacturers uh, on one side, like Johnson and Johnson or 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 GE. And um, you, you take the consumer electronics companies on the other side, Apple, uh, Google, Microsoft. Um, I think both ends are trying to move uh, to the other end of the spectrum. And um, you can see it uh, in like the new glucometers that come from these traditional medical device manufacturers are, are more and more talking about, oh, it connects to your smartphone and you can text the reading to, to somebody you like. And um, on the other hand, what you just mentioned, the Apple Watch was essentially a consumer electronic device, and now it's starting to have more, uh, like we'll, we'll tell you about your heart health, and here's how much you should walk every day. And it's starting to have more health-related uh, value propositions. I think the march towards the middle is, is in inevitable. I do think that we've had so much... Uh, um, the medical device innovation has been burdened so much, and, and perhaps rightfully so, that the pace of innovation is, is way slower than the consumer electronics. So uh, given with the rise of the consumeristic healthcare, um, I think consumer electronic devices will start playing a, a vital role in healthcare faster than medical devices becoming more consumer-friendly. Um, I do think this coupled with the, uh, with the accountable care, sort of Obamacare transformation, we're, 
where providers are now curious to know what goes on at home so that they can keep you there and not have a, a, a medical visit, uh, I think that starts opening up a lot of possibilities for, um, for creating consumer medical devices that are actually not just not really medical devices. They're more like consumer electronics that's playing a health role. And I, I was talking to a, a nephrologist friend recently, and um, you know they run a very successful dialysis practice. And now that they're starting to think about uh, being at risk, uh, like writing a contract where they get a fixed price for uh, dialysis services, they're interested in knowing how can we regulate uh, water intake at, uh, at patients' home so that we don't have to do these emergency dialysis. And, and we, we know how much water has gone in, and we can plan for the next dialysis service. I think that, that is a perfect example of uh, consumer electronics starting to play uh, a, more, a better role in, in directing health services. So I, my prediction would be you would see a lot happening at the consumer's home and, um, and the devices that consumers can just buy off the shelf. Um, you'd see a lot happening with the data generated from there and being used in clinical decision-making. Um, of course, we'll have to go through the normal cycle of random, uh, you know, random studies and clinical trials uh, to establish the formal evidence for it, but there are certain sort of indisputable um, uh, data sets that can, um, that can already help clinicians, like how much weight you gain through pregnancy or you know, how much water you drink for dialysis, um, how many times you have a, you've inhaled your, through your inhaler um, for asthmatics. Like things like that actually do matter in clinical decision-making, and we're getting better at sensing them, and what, what we need to solve for is making that data liquid enough that it's available for clinicians to, uh, to take a look at. So, love, you know, there's a lot to be excited about, obviously, with all these uh, converging fields and all kinds of new technology to be able to, to deploy into healthcare. But there's a really interesting note towards the, the end of your book, and it parallels something we discovered when we uh, completed our 18-month uh, study on incubators and accelerators, and that's a term that you've dubbed fake mentors. So we interviewed about 100 accelerator and incubator professionals and about 50 entrepreneurs who'd gone through those programs. And we got a similar kind of caveat emptor out of those conversations with entrepreneurs. Can you talk about that fake mentor phenomenon, what you found, and why entrepreneurs should be careful about what they're stepping into? Yeah, I mean, uh, this actually was part of a Quora answer that I wrote, and perhaps not with the, not with the positive emotion. Um, I did go through the entrepreneur life cycle myself and met several interesting people uh, who were quite uh, approachable and ready to be of service. And what I discovered after a few interactions was they really don't have much to offer except uh, sort of like a boilerplate thing that they do for, for everybody and uh, a very uh, a, a typical example is, uh, say, uh, an independent lawyer. Um, for, for an established attorney, 
it's a piece of cake to help incorporate a company or to write down um, terms of service because it, it, they do it a lot of times. They probably have a template and they just fill in a few blanks and can can generate something that's quote unquote customized for uh, for somebody new. I think these people are just trying to maximize um, the few skills that they have and spread them around in a number of startups uh, so that they have a portfolio uh, on which they can uh, sort of they've diversified enough and hope one of that hopes with the hopes that one of them is going to you know really hit it out of the park. Uh, I'm actually not dinging fake mentors. I think these are people with uh, with a certain skill set that uh, that's repeatable and they do something that's um, pretty commodity for in, in their industry. I do think it, it's uh, it's detrimental to a startup to have people like that around in the initial stages because um, you don't really have the bandwidth to uh, create. A, a huge mass of people uh, that are essentially just advisors in your company. Um, you need people who roll up their sleeves beyond what they can normally do and, and think out of the box. Um, I don't think uh, mentors who do one or two things for you or just uh, open up their uh, Rolodex uh, are, are, are too... Um, well, it's good to have people who have a, a great network, but if you're just walking into uh, an attorney's office and expecting them to uh, make the right introductions, I think that's uh, that's a waste of uh, startup founders' time, uh, which is, by the way, very precious. I, I, that's what I felt personally was there's a short runway here. If I talk to somebody who is essentially not um, a genuine uh, person or, or a ge has genuine interest in the startup, you're missing out opportunities to talk to somebody who could really be passionate about your cause and very well aligned with what, what your vision is. So from that perspective, I think, um, and, and Silicon Valley, by the way, is, a, is, is full of uh, a lot of talented people, but it's also full of people who've, who've done their bit and seen the repeated sort of patterns enough to say, yeah, I could do that for any startup without changing much. And why don't I just go to a networking event and, and try to find as many people as I can uh, and do the same thing for them. I don't think there's a, uh, there's benefit in, in, in networking with such people. Palash. A little harsh, I know. Oh, it's okay. We, we found similar things in, in the California Toolworks study that we did on the accelerator environment and, and how it's exploded so much. So it's very interesting to see this uh, in the book. This has been a few minutes with Palav Sharda, author of Before Disrupting Healthcare. And Palav, where can people find the book? Uh, so there's a website dedicated to the book. Uh, called, it's uh, www.beforedisrupting.com, and all the information of where you can find it. There's a Kindle, print, uh, iBooks, and an audible, uh, audiobook version um, that's available. Palav, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Matt. Uh, this, was, this was great. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, thanks again to Palav Sharda and to our sponsors at Nixon Peabody, as well as Scott Horwath, Kylie Lee, and the rest of the CTC team. If you enjoy CTC's podcasts, we want to hear from you. 
email us at podcast at californiatechnology.org. And we invite you to join. You can learn more at californiatechnology.org slash join. Well, that's it for this episode of Inside the Founder Studio. Thanks for listening, and we'll have more for you soon. Inside the Founder Studio is produced in Northern California by the California Technology Council.